Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask thy blessing upon this time of study this evening. Pray that thou would uh, anoint thy word and uh, the speaker, uh, that uh, thou, thy spirit would guide and direct us into thy truth, and that, uh, Lord, we would be uh, those who delight to walk in the light that thou dost reveal in thy word. Uh, cleanse us of our sins, Lord, and and uh, give to us uh, thy direction in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, John 15. And uh, verses 22 through 27 are the verses that we will be considering, but we're going to just pick up the context. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that it is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. In the previous study, Jesus had warned his disciples that the world was going to hate him, and as a result of the world hating him, they would also hate those who followed him. And if the world persecuted him, they would also persecute his disciples, because Jesus says uh, in those verses, we've just read, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And if that was true while Jesus was still upon the earth, it is even perhaps uh, to a greater extent uh, true since Jesus has left this world because they can no longer personally persecute Jesus. Uh, they can no longer grab him, hold him, uh, cause him to be um, beaten. And so naturally who they will persecute are those who follow Jesus, those who are in union with Jesus and in communion with Jesus. You'll remember on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to Paul or Saul at that time, who became Paul, that Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus said that because of the union that exists between Christ's followers and Jesus. They weren't personally grabbing Jesus from heaven and persecuting him, but they were persecuting those who followed him. But because of the union that we have with Christ, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. 
that's what Jesus has been illustrating in John 15 when he talks about the vine and the branches, that union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, that connection that we have with him and he with us. And so in the verses that we are to look at this evening, that same uh, theme of hatred and persecution continues in the words of the Lord Jesus. And so we'll begin with verse 22. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. So when Jesus says, if he had not come and spoken to them that they had had no sin, he does not mean that, that had he not come and, and, and by way of his incarnation, and had he not given to those living at that time his truth, primarily the Jews among whom he ministered, he's not saying that they would have been sinless. Uh, for there are three ways in which all people, except Jesus Christ, become sinners. And this was certainly true of those to whom Jesus spoke at that time. Uh, and so uh, these are the three ways in which all become sinners. First of all, all become sinners by covenantal union with Adam as our federal head uh, by way of the covenant of works that God established with Adam and all his posterity by ordinary generation. In Adam's first sin, all people are imputed the sin of Adam and constituted sinners. That's what the Apostle Paul means in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So by that first sin of Adam, that was imputed to all mankind and and uh, so all men, except Christ, are constituted sinners by way of a covenantal union with Adam as their federal head. But there's also a second way in which all people, except Christ, become sinners. And that is uh, by biological union, not only by covenantal union, but by biological union with Adam as our natural father, the father of the human race. And so that, uh, that sin uh, and corruption, which became Adam's when he fell, that corrupt nature, he was created upright, uh, he fell, and when he fell, he uh, was uh, given and there came upon him a corrupt nature. That corrupt nature is passed on from generation to generation so that all, except Jesus Christ, who uh, was conceived without sin, all human beings are conceived in sin, inherit uh, a corrupt nature. Uh, that is called uh, original sin. The psalmist says, and David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is the second way in which all men, except Christ, are sinners. And so that, uh, again, uh, would give to us two of the three ways which all people, uh, by which all people become sinners. The third way by which all people become sinners 
would be by our own personal transgressions of God's law in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. So, first way that all men become sinners by covenantal union with Adam as, as our federal head through the covenant of works. The second way, by biological union with Adam as our natural father and inheriting that corrupt nature, passing it on from generation to generation. Thirdly, by way of our personal transgressions, uh, that uh, in, by way of our violating uh, God's holy law. And that violation of God's law can be by way of things that uh, we ought not to do, and we do, sins of commission, or things we ought to do and we don't do, sins of omission. Also, uh, our personal sins uh, and transgressions of God's law can also be knowingly. We can knowingly, intentionally violate God's law, but we can also ignorantly and unintentionally violate God's law. And it's still a violation of God's law, even if we do so ignorantly. It may not be as aggravated of a sin, but it's still a sin. That's why in the Old Testament, in Le Leviticus chapter 4, uh, specifically there are offerings made, sacrifices made for sins of ignorance. Sins of ignorance. And we, we understand from 1 John 3, 4 that transgression of the law of God is what constitutes a sin, whether we do so uh, ignorantly or, or willfully. Uh, it is a transgression of God's law that is a sin. So those are the three ways in which all people become sinners, except for Christ himself. So back to the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 22. When he says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. So we've already shown that all men are sinners, even if hypothetically Jesus had not come and spoken his words to that generation, they still would have been sinners. So what does Jesus mean when he says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin? Well, what he's saying, I believe at that point, is that they would not have had as aggravated of a sin had he not come and spoken unto them. They've aggravated their sin by way of Jesus being brought into uh, this world by way of his incarnation, uh, true humanity, true deity as to his natures, and by way of his words that he spoke, the truth. They are not less accountable that heard Jesus and saw Jesus. Uh, they are more accountable because of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And I believe that's what Jesus is, is saying in verse 21, <clears throat> or in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. That is a aggravation of sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. They cannot excuse themselves uh, in as much as they have the greatest revelation uh, of, uh, from God. The personal word, not simply the written word, but the personal word, Jesus Christ, and they've rejected him. And it emphasizes a, a truth which we've spoken of many times, but it bears repeating at this point. The more light that we have, we're not less accountable. The more privileges that we enjoy were not placed beyond um, being accountable uh, because we have more privileges and more light. 
we're actually, according to what Jesus is saying here, uh, we are more accountable, we aggravate the guilt of our sin by our rejection, by our ignoring the light that we have. So whatever excuses that we might offer for the sins that we've committed, we may excuse ourselves because we're young, because we're immature, we may excuse our sins because we say, well, I had to sin. Um, these were my options and I, I didn't have any other option than to sin. That, that may, again, be an excuse that's used. It's not a lawful or legitimate excuse, but it's an excuse that may be offered. Or someone may say, uh, I sinned because, out of love uh, for that person. I, I, I sinned uh, in order to show that person I love them, and so I committed a sin, a transgression of God's holy law. Or one might say, well, I excuse their sin because of jealousy or uh, getting even, retaliating. So there's all kinds of rationalizations. But the Lord is saying here in verse 22, uh, we have no cloak for our sin. We have no excuse for our sin, especially when we have more light given unto us. You see, the Jews to whom Jesus is speaking seemed to have it just backwards to what Jesus is saying. The Jews thought that having more privileges would allow them more freedom to sin against God. That they were placed so far up here in comparison to everybody else that God would, would wink at their sins. But Jesus is saying, no, quite the contrary. The more light that you have, the more accountable and responsible you are to walk in the light and not to walk in darkness. In Romans chapter 2, that's what the Apostle Paul, this very attitude of the Jews, that because they had all these privileges, that they uh, were able to, uh, to sin uh, and, and uh, for God to wink at their sin, Paul deals with that objection. Romans 2, beginning with verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Here are their privileges that Paul is saying. You have the law. You, you take delight that you have God's law, and these excellent things. Verse 19, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. You, you exalt yourself that you are a guide to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, and in, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. And continues. And so this truth in verse 22 basically emphasizes that we are to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And God is always going to be merciful to us in Jesus Christ. But let us not excuse our sin. Let us not uh, put a cloak over us to hide us, uh, to hide our sin. 
because of the greater light and privileges that we enjoy, like the Jews, let us rather walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 23, Jesus continues, He that hateth me hateth my father also. And so here is a, a very, very telling, important connection that Jesus makes between himself and the Father. Jesus gives a reason as to why those who will not receive his words are so much more accountable than if they had never heard and read them. And that reason is because the words of Christ are not merely his words. They are the words of the Father who sent Jesus into the world. So to reject the Son is to reject the Father. To hate the Son is to hate the Father. To not receive the words of the Lord Jesus is not to receive the words of the Father or the truth that the Father has given. Now someone may say, I don't hate Jesus. I just don't receive him as Lord and Savior. I just don't receive him as the Messiah. I don't believe all the things that he taught. But understand here that Jesus does not leave any middle ground. To not receive him is not to receive the Father. To refuse or to ignore the words of Jesus is to hate him. No middle ground. And Jesus then says to hate me is to hate the Father. So what is that? say about all manner of false religions, starting with those that claim to be monotheists. Judaism. Do they love the sun? No. There's no middle ground. They hate the sun. They despise the sun. They do not receive his words. Therefore, Jesus says, they hate the Father who sent me. They do not receive the Father's words. Likewise, Islam, the same thing be true. Buddhism, Hinduism. Atheists may say, I don't hate Jesus. But again, they, in saying, and not saying, I love Jesus, they do hate him. And the ordinary person on the street. See, again, this is, this is so important because so many people want to try to ride the fence here with regard to their relationship to Christ. They want to say, in effect, uh, no, I don't hate Jesus. You know, um, I mean, some may say, uh, uh, obviously in certain religions, they may uh, say they, um, despise the Jesus that we're talking about. They may form a Jesus in their own imagination, a, a Jesus of their own uh, creation, but not the Jesus that the Bible speaks of. And so they may, again, reframe um, uh, who Jesus is, but uh, the Jesus that's spoken of here, they do not love. And that's, again, uh, where I think we need to help the, the person on the street to, to, to come to that realization that if you don't receive the Lord Jesus, Jesus himself says that you hate me. You despise me. Because if you didn't hate me and despise me, you'd receive me. You would love me. You would follow me. None can hide behind their alleged love for God, the Father, if they do not love the Son, if they do not trust the Son, if they do not obey the Son of God. 
So we're reminded here of that close union between the persons of the Holy Trinity. Verse 24, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. So he's saying something very similar to what he says in verse 22, but now he's not simply talking about his words, he's now talking about his miraculous works. If he had not performed these miraculous works among them, uh, they had not had sin. In other words, his works, his miraculous works, and the light that those likewise shed brought them to a higher degree of accountability. They saw the miraculous works of the Lord Jesus, but they discounted them. Or they simply followed the works, but not the teaching. They separated the works from the teaching, from the person of Jesus Christ. So his mighty works, he says, witnessed to that generation and left them as well without excuses. Those mighty works aggravated their sin of unbelief. Again, we need to emphasize that if those mighty works are not believed and received as, as confirming that Jesus is the Son of God, then they despise the Lord Jesus, regardless of what their words, what they may say with their words. They despise him. They hate him. Um, there is no neutrality. Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground here. That's where so many people want to go, is to a middle ground that God does not give unto them. And moreover, they also hated, therefore, the Father. They hate the Son, they hate the Father. That generation of Jews that witnessed the mighty works of the Lord Jesus and rejected them brought upon themselves the great wrath of God for having rejected, and not only rejected, but having crucified he who was the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the, what Jesus says by way of the judgment that is to come upon that generation in Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets. He's speaking again to this whole chapter are the woes that are pronounced against the religious leaders. And he continues uh, those woes, that judgment that, that is to come in verse 34. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous, of righteous Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. So the Lord Jesus is saying, you, you and uh, uh, are filling up your sins because you are following in the footsteps of your fathers who persecuted the prophets, who put the prophets to death. You're following in their footsteps. And I've sent to you prophets, namely, during the ministry of Christ, the 12, the apostles of Christ, the 70, who were also anointed to go out and proclaim the truth that on behalf of the Lord Jesus. They were also ministers. They were not apostles, but they were ministers uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, the 70. Jesus said, I've sent them out. This has not made you less accountable. 
It's made you more accountable, and you're, and, and the fact that they are going to not only treat those whom Jesus sends out, but they're going to treat him in the same way. They're going to, in fact, bring upon him even greater suffering. They're going to put him to death. They're going to call him a criminal. Cursed is he who hangs upon a tree. They're going to, to view him as the one uh, who deserves God's judgment when, and God will pour out his judgment upon them um, uh, for their aggravation of sin. We may say, well, of course they're more accountable. They were there. They saw the miracles of Christ. But are we less accountable? We may not have seen with our natural eyes the miracles of Christ, but we have seen the miracles of Christ recorded in the Holy Scripture. And if we reject them, it is then to reject Jesus Christ, to reject his miracles that he performed, is to reject Jesus Christ. To discount them is to discount Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. It is to hate him. To hate him is to hate the Father. There's that unbreakable connection. Verse 25, John 15, 25. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So the hatred of the Jews for the Lord Jesus was prophesied to occur in the law of God in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, we can turn to Psalm 69.4. Psalm 69.4. Where this, uh, these words are uttered by the psalmist. Verse 4. Psalm 69.4 says, They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. So again, uh, uh, this is a, at least one place in the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus, when he says, as it is written in the law, that they hated me without a cause. This uh, is one place where it's cited uh, by the Psalms, by David, a Psalm of David, the introduction to Psalm 69 reads. And so uh, this teaches us how, uh, how many things are spoken of the Lord Jesus uh, in the Old Testament uh, that we may not, again, have insight into, uh, but Jesus reveals to us in this particular instance that this may have been true of David uh, historically, but that it ultimately was realized uh, in the Lord Jesus, in his life, how he was hated, because he is the greater David. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah who sits upon the throne of David, even in heavenly glory now. He's been enthroned and sits on the throne of David in heaven. So the Jews would no doubt have said, we have a reason to hate Jesus. They may have given a reason, even though Jesus says they, that he was they hated him without a cause. So Jesus is not saying they didn't have a re reason that they would state that they, for which they hated Jesus. But if what he's saying, they don't have a righteous reason. They don't have a just reason. They don't have a lawful reason for hating me. They had a reason and that reason is actually revealed 
in Matthew 27, 18, where Pilate says he knew that they delivered Jesus over out of envy. The reason that they hated Jesus is because they envied Jesus. His following, his power, his words, they envied him. And envy doesn't simply want to make, as it were, the playing field equal. You know, cut, one, cut somebody down so that they're, they're not way up there, but they're equal to you. That's not what envy does. Envy doesn't even want them in the picture, and so envy seeks to destroy uh, that uh, person. Destroy that person by words, or in this case, not only by words, by deeds. That's, where, that's the sin of envy. Um, as opposed to covetousness, covetousness simply wants what somebody else has, uh, but uh, envy's not satisfied with simply having what that other person has. The fact that that person is still standing there uh, for the person who is envious uh, means that that person needs to be destroyed. And so that is, again, the sin of envy. So yeah, they had a reason, but it was, it was a, an abominable, it was a wicked reason. Many times, by way of application, many times we go searching um, for the reasons why someone doesn't like us, why someone treats us ill, uh, why someone persecutes us, why someone hates us. And there's nothing wrong uh, with seeking to understand, if possible, what that reason might be, so that if we can, discuss with them the reason that they hate us, despise us, treat us ill, that we may be able, by God's grace, to remove that as a stumbling block to them or, or an offense to them, or um, even if it's not a, an offense that we've given, a, an offense that they've taken. So I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to understand why someone doesn't like us or hates us. But many times people, as with Jesus, they don't have a good reason for despising us and hating us. Because the reason they despise us and hate us is because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, because our light reveals their sin and the darkness uh, within them. Our hope reveals their hopelessness and their despair. Our security and our peace in Christ in the midst of all manner of tribulation reveals their lack of peace, their confusion. And again, how do we deal with that? You, you, we can't forsake what we have been given. We can't give up what we've been given in order to make someone like us, to remove that which, which is our most precious treasure and gift. We can't cast it away. Uh, Jesus didn't become like the world in order to win the world. He became flesh. He became a man, not only true God, but true man, in order to win the world. But he didn't compromise the truth. He didn't compromise righteousness in order to win the world. And neither can we. And so we have to understand that the cross is an offense. The cross is an offense to the world. Apart from the grace of God in opening the hearts and minds of people to receive what Christ accomplished upon the cross. And so some people, you know, and I, this is what I'm trying to help us to avoid, that we don't think that, and don't fall into the trap of thinking, which I think the enemy would want us to think this way, that we've got to do everything uh, that we possibly can to make people like us. 
again, it's not that we should not seek to remove any obstacles or, or offenses or things of that nature that we can. But again, I, I do think that um, many times it's simply, as with the Lord Jesus, uh, he was perfect, he was sinless, and people hated him. And so again, um, and that's what they hated about him. Um, they charged him with sin, but they knew that the very charges they were bringing against him uh, were false charges, were false accusations. So let us understand that people will hate us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, even as they hated Jesus, because we're followers of Christ. This is the cost of bearing the cross of Jesus Christ that he has given unto us. We will not be liked by everyone, and we cannot make everyone like us. But we can, again, let our light shine. We can pray for those. We can bless those who curse us. We can pray for those who persecute us. Um, and, uh, and, again, seek to through our, through our actions, uh, through our words, let Christ's light shine in us uh, and leave it with the Holy Spirit when, we've, when we have sought to remove those obstacles. Verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, Jesus says, Whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So the Lord Jesus says, though his disciples uh, are hated and persecuted by the world, he encourages them. He, Jesus uh, encourages them, he encourages us that he is going to send unto us the Holy Spirit to comfort and to give us courage to be faithful witnesses for him. That's one of, the, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to give to us that grace to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus. And so, um, here the Lord Jesus once again promises the comfort of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. He's done this on, on more than one occasion uh, earlier uh, in the Gospel of John as well. But uh, this, is, this is not um, giving to us a paradigm that the Holy Spirit is given in two stages of uh, as if the Holy Spirit is first given when we are converted, when we are, when we are regenerated, when we're converted. That's the first giving of the Holy Spirit. And then there's a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. That's what, again, uh, various churches that uh, might be called Pentecostal or charismatic uh, types church, type of churches would believe in a two-stage um, giving of the Holy Spirit. And uh, again, they might use, probably would use, the fact that disciples received the Holy Spirit, um, were converted, were regenerated by the Holy Spirit during the ministry of Christ, but here Christ is promising the Holy Spirit to them, uh, to be given to them uh, after he has been raised ascended into heaven, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. But, as I said, that's not a paradigm for all uh, Christians subsequent uh, to that time, that we follow a two-stage giving of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit in his fullness 
when we are regenerated, when we are born again, when we are converted, when we trust in Jesus Christ, uh, we receive all of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to get any more of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can certainly manifest more of the Spirit's life to varying degrees based upon whether we're walking in fellowship and communion with Jesus, or we can, again, uh, resist the Holy Spirit, uh, even as Christians. Uh, we can grieve the Holy Spirit by our sin. So there, there are ways in which we can uh, uh, see the blessing of the Holy Spirit not manifested to the same degree uh, as when we are walking in fellowship and communion with Christ and loving obedience to Christ and his word. But that's not receiving more of the Holy Spirit uh, or having less of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's again, uh, that has to do with our own, um, our own uh, life and whether we are living uh, accordingly. So what was going on why did, why did we have the apostles then receiving the Holy Spirit when they were born again and then this, this uh, giving of the Holy Spirit which came in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? Well, um, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was, could not come uh, by way of a blessing upon uh, the apostles because Jesus said he had not yet been glorified. When he was glorified, when he ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, enthroned uh, as the, the prince, as the king, then he poured forth the Holy Spirit by way of uh, his royal blessings upon his subjects and uh, upon particularly uh, those that were gathered there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. This was again a, a blessing uh, which gave unto them, uh, the, the apostles at that particular time, uh, not more of the Holy Spirit, but a, a, a blessedness that they received uh, manifest blessings of, of uh, greater joy, peace, um, uh, uh, even greater demonstrations of, of uh, there being witnesses going into all the world, preaching the gospel. Um, again, that power that was needed to overcome their fears and things. There was, again, a, a, a blessing which the the, the Lord gave to his apostles. And subsequently, uh, after that day of Pentecost, we see 3,000 were, that were saved on that same day. It doesn't say that they had a second experience. From that point on, they all received the Holy Spirit in his fullness uh, when they were born again. Someone might say, well, what happened in Samaria in Acts 8? and, uh, and uh, Cornelius in Acts 10. Uh, was that not again a two-stage type of a giving of the Holy Spirit? And again, um, those who are Pentecostal and charismatic will appeal to those verses as well. And I would just say very briefly that uh, uh, in both cases, the, uh, the reason that it happened the way that it did is because there needed to be apostles present in each of those instances to be able to witness, to be able to verify that the same blessing that they had, the Jews, the apostles had received on the day of Pentecost, the same blessing of the Holy Spirit, they too in Samaria and in the Gentiles likewise had received so that there would not be this distinction within Christ's church between 
Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans, but that they would understand there is one church of Jesus Christ. The apostles, uh, therefore, were sent uh, in those instances uh, to verify and confirm this. Uh, and again, subsequent to that, we don't find this two, you know, a two-stage type of uh, giving of the Holy Spirit amongst the Samaritans or amongst the Gentiles. Uh, because, again, there were special reasons why in those historical instances it happened the way it did. Not as a pattern, not as a paradigm that is to follow from that time forward. Here uh, in verse 26, uh, I want to just uh, focus on, uh, very briefly, speaking of the spirit of truth that... Uh, he would, the Holy Spirit does uh, bring the truth, does open minds to the truth, uh, does dispel error. Uh, but notice the, which proceedeth, the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Uh, some question as to what this means, which proceedeth from the Father. So is this proceeding from the Father a reference to the Holy Spirit being given on the day of Pentecost, or is this proceeding from the Father a reference to the eternal procession of the Spirit um, from the divine essence of the Father in eternity? In Westminster a Confession of Faith, uh, chapter... To section three, speaking of the uh, of God and the Holy Trinity, we read these words: "In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding." The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is again the, the unity of nature, the diversity of persons, uh, and the biblical explanation a mystery beyond certainly our comprehension because this is, this is an eternity. This is not in time uh, that Jesus Christ or that the Son of God is eternally begotten, that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The church uh, in 1054, the the Eastern Church and the Western Church, the Greek Church and the Latin Church split uh, over uh, this particular doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. The Greek Church uh, maintains that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and only the Father. The Western Church uh, the Latin Church uh, maintained that uh, the, the Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. Uh, Protestants have followed the Western Church rather than the Eastern Church with regard to the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, there gathered an ecumenical council of bishops from the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And as they talked about uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, again, they did not address the issue of, they, they said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's basically period where it stopped. It didn't talk about the procession, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 381, the Council of Constantinople, um, the uh, 
there were no Western bishops present at that council, and so their voice was not heard at that time. And the council, consisting of uh, only Eastern bish bishops, uh, did uh, define the procession of the Holy Spirit, the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit, as being from the Father, uh, not, not from the Father and the Son. Um, council of Ephesus in 431 is the next uh, ecumenical council, and it confirmed not the words of the Council of Constantinople that mentioned procession from the Father, they confirmed the words of the original uh, uh, Council of Nicaea in 325, which did not define uh, anything related to the procession, the eternal pro procession of the Holy Spirit, just we believe in the Holy Spirit. And there were Western bishops present at that council as well, uh, Ephesus. Council of Ephesus 431. It wasn't, uh, it's not that there weren't uh, those in the West who um, uh, saw this as of concern and a problem that, that uh, the Eastern Church maintained that the Holy Spirit proceeded eternally from only the Father. Uh, they, the West began to, and certain churches within the West in the late 6th century began to uh, make a case for, uh, in, publicly make a case for the eternal procession of, of, of the Spirit uh, from the Father and the Son. Um, in Latin, and from the Son, Philoque, uh, and so the Philoque, uh, was added uh, to from the Father and from the Son. As I said, after, uh, after that, uh, that became, um, in 1054, uh, the, that which divided uh, the Eastern Church from the Western Church, uh, each calling the, the other heretics, excommunicated uh, each uh, uh, branch uh, uh, of the Christian church over that. Well, again, um, why do we find here in verse 26, if we believe that uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, uh, we find here only which proceeded from the Father. Well, again, we may not understand or know why, uh, in particular instances, why there isn't a more complete um, expression of, of the truth. But we do know from other places, for example, that um, in Romans 8, 9, and Galatians 4, 6, that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. That is, the Spirit that comes from Jesus. Um, and uh, so we do have those other passages which uh, do demonstrate uh, that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds not only from the Father but from the Son. I, I, would, uh, I would simply make this point, if the Holy Spirit did not eternally proceed from the Father and the Son, then there would be no personal relation between the Son and the Holy Spirit. There would only be a personal relation between the Father and the Spirit. You know, they would all share the same substance, but there would not be uh, a personal, you know, as to the persons, um, that there would be no personal relationship between the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son, and Jesus says in verse 7 of chapter 16 that he sins. He says, um, For if I go not away, the, the Comforter will not come unto you, but I, if I depart, I will send him unto you. Uh, meaning, again, he will send him on the day of Pentecost. Uh, he will send the Holy Spirit to instruct them and teach them. And I, I would just ask, how is it that the Son sends the Spirit and yet does not proceed from the Spirit? This may be, again, a doctrine, and, and, and I wanted to spend a little time talking about this because it comes up here, and we, 
you know, we, we don't want to just make this so practical and not theological and not doctrinal that we overlook some very important matters as it relates to uh, God and uh, to the unity of God and then as to the uh, diversity uh, of persons uh, amongst the Godhead. But what we should not miss in even this theological discussion is that the Holy Spirit is absolutely divine. The Holy Spirit is true God, just as the Father is true God, just as the Son is true God. The Holy Spirit is true God. He's not, uh, he's not a force. He's not an impersonal force. He's not uh, an impersonal uh, energy of God. Uh, he is a person third person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses will claim that the Holy Spirit is not a person, that he's simply a force. Uh, he, he, is a, the, he is a power, he is an energy, an impersonal, not personal. But in the Greek text, uh, here in verse 26, the gender of the pronoun used uh, is not in the neuter, but in the masculine. Uh, he, that is the Holy Spirit, at the very end of verse 26, he, not it, shall testify of me. A personal, masculine personal pronoun, he shall testify of me. Even though the word spirit in the Greek text is always in the neuter, it doesn't use a neuter with regard to the personal pronoun, it uses a masculine. It uses a masculine. So it goes out of the te biblical text, goes out of its way. We might expect a neuter um, personal pronoun to be used with a neuter noun. Okay? Uh, but the Holy Spirit goes out of his way to show that he is a person by by having a neuter noun spirit, a pneuma, and then uh, following that up with a masculine personal pronoun, he. And then verse 27. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. So regardless of all the hatred, persecution that comes from the Jews at that time against the disciples, against the church, or the persecution that comes from the world, uh, Christ's disciples will be strengthened with courage and with wisdom to bear a faithful testimony uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I close on this thought. How is it that we will be able to bear a faithful testimony in the world, whether in our family, at work, school, in the church, in, in the nation. How is it that we will be able to bear a faithful testimony? Jesus says, Because ye have been with me from the beginning, and ye also shall bear witness. Why? Because ye have been with me from the beginning. Do you see the connection? It's only as we are with Jesus. They were with Jesus from the beginning and he says ye, they would bear a faithful testimony. We will bear a testimony, faithful testimony as we are with Jesus, as we are in communion with the Lord Jesus. Not only professing I'm united to Christ, but I am in communion with Christ. I am spending time with Christ. I am learning from Christ. I am enjoying Him. I am rejoicing in Him. And so, again, only as we are with Jesus uh, can we and will we bear a faithful testimony. Only as we are with Jesus and with His truth, in His truth, in His Word, in receiving his miracles that we find given to us in his word. Only as we are communing with Christ and with his words and with his miracles 
um, will we bear a faithful testimonies. And so let us, again, take that from us, uh, even as we close this evening, that our communion with Christ is that which the Lord uses in our lives to bring forth a faithful testimony for Christ. Let's uh, stand and ask the Lord's blessing upon what we have read and, and uh, the words that have been spoken. We thank thee, our, our Father, that thou hast sent the Son and hast given even to him the words and the, and the miraculous works to perform. And they testify uh, of thee. Those works of the Son testify that thou hast sent him. And those who do not receive the words and the works of the Son do not receive the words and the works of the Father. Those who hate the Son, despise the Son, despise and hate the Father. We thank thee, our Lord, that thou hast given to us light and understanding to receive the blessedness, the truth of Jesus Christ. For in so doing, we know we have thy blessing, Holy Father. We know that thy countenance does shine upon us, and thou dost delight in us because we delight in thy Son, whom thou hast sent. We receive him as our Lord and Savior. We pray, our Lord, may we spend time with thee that we would bear a faithful testimony for the Lord Jesus, that we would not think we can wing this on our own, that we can simply uh, turn on an automatic pilot in our Christianity, our faith, but that, Lord, we must daily uh, charge and recharge the batteries of our spiritual life through reading thy word, through spending time in prayer, communion with thee. Bless, Lord, uh, thy truth. In Jesus' name, amen.